0: Welcome fellow plebs, my name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. Hello everybody, welcome back for another episode. I want to apologize to everybody for the wait for this episode, it's been too long, no matter what the excuse is. So here's my excuse. I just got overwhelmed and burnt out, and that's pretty much it. The world just beat me down, and I had to take a little bit more of a break than usual for my own happiness and well-being. Racism and mass shootings, cops killing people sometimes all at once, long work hours, family stuff, it all just added up. And when push comes to shove, family wins every single time. But we're good now. We're back. And the schedule will definitely tighten up here, but I just wanted to give a little explanation and that apology for the long wait. So that said and out of the way, here's the episode. Okay, so let's talk about unions today. And for this discussion, I want to talk a little bit about what happened with the Amazon warehouse union vote in Bessemer, Alabama. I want to talk a little bit about my own experience when my own workplace tried to unionize. But I mostly want to talk about the Pro Act legislation that is currently awaiting a vote in the Senate. And what I'm going to do is kind of blend all of that together rather than break it into three distinct sections. So wish me luck. Hell, wish you luck, I guess. Okay, so the union organizers lost the Amazon vote and Amazon remains union-free. This was kind of crushing, to be honest, and at least to me, a mild surprise. Not necessarily that they lost, but by how badly they lost. I really thought that they had a better shot than they did. I guess that's obvious at this point, but I was hopeful, so sue me, okay? And the vote wasn't even really all that close, We could probably call it a blowout if we're being honest with ourselves. So, what happened? Well, a lot of stuff happened, but I'm only going to talk about the things that are at least semi-verifiable, including some things I talked about in episode 24, in fact. And by the way, if you perhaps didn't know about this union vote or what it means, please go back and listen to episode 24 at some point where I went into some detail about it. So back to the topic here, what this will all come down to is one thing, power. Oh, and also the money which provides that power. As a group of employees begins the process of unionizing, they have no power. As a corporation, and especially one as big and as wealthy as Amazon, begins the process of blocking a union, they have immense amounts of power. Amazon even went so far as to force the county that contains the Bessemer warehouse to change the timing on a stoplight at an intersection near their facility to prevent organizers from talking to its employees. That is the level of power we are talking about. Workers did not have the power to alter the safe flow of traffic on county roads. Hell, Amazon workers couldn't even defecate at work without staring at propaganda posters. That's how little power that they actually had. Amazon had the power to hold mandatory, captive audience meetings where they could spew propaganda for an hour straight with no pushback or counterpoints from union representatives. In fact, if an Amazon employee said something or questioned anything, An Amazon manager would call that employee to the front of the room, photograph that employee's ID badge in front of everybody, and then dismiss them from the room. The message was clear. If you speak up, you will be removed from the room, your identification will be recorded, and, less explicitly, your job will be on the line. That was the threat. Some meetings even had strict no-talking rules for the employees, who were forced to sit through them. There is no freedom to talk in between those walls, not even in the lowercase broad general sense of the term. And let's not forget that employers can generally fire anyone for any reason at any time. The workers had no protection from any of this. Amazon and really any employer, they can legally rid themselves of you at a whim This is how much power Amazon had during this organizing effort. When my workplace tried to unionize, I saw the power of corporations up front and personal at one of these mandatory captive meetings. About 20 of us, about a third of the workforce, yes, this is a much smaller place than the massive Amazon warehouse with over 5,000 employees, we piled into the conference room. In the front was some dork from corporate with a projector and a movie screen. In the back of the room were local and regional bosses, some of whom I had never seen before. We were forced to sit there for 20 or so minutes and listen to this guy with the projector basically lie to us. And when the lies got so bad and I spoke up, I saw the regional VP lean over and ask who I was, and then he wrote something down, which I am pretty sure was my name. Now personally, I didn't really care at that point because this was something that I had expected. But some of the other employees said that they felt like if they spoke up that they'd get fired. And I don't blame them one bit. It's a little scary to be in that situation if you have a family and bills to pay. I totally understand. And I don't want to spend too much time on my personal experience here because it's not entirely relevant. Plus it might make a good episode all on its own. But I did want to mention the anxiety that this sort of captured audience meeting instilled in my fellow employees. It was a few days later when someone who was in a position to know told me that they were taking names of those who seemed to be in favor of a union so that the next round of meetings they could segregate us and put all of those people in one meeting so that we wouldn't poison anyone's minds amongst the the fence sitters and the definite no votes. After all, if the only people in the next meeting are firm no votes, people who aren't sure, and the corporate goons, which way do you think that the not-sures will be leaning by the time the meetings are over? So we see how corporations can use their power to get no votes, right? I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me just on its face, let alone after providing a few examples, right? So the PRO Act, what the hell is it? And how can it help with any of this? Well, the PRO Act, with the PRO standing for protecting the rights to organize, is a bill which was passed through the House of Representatives on March 9th and is currently sitting in the Senate awaiting a vote. It would make massive changes to the National Labor Relations Act and make it much easier for workers to organize and form unions. This bill if passed, would be the single biggest boon to collective bargaining since the National Labor Relations Act was originally passed in 1935, and it would represent a massive step forward for the working and middle class of this country. What I'm going to do is run down a bunch of the key points that the PRO Act addresses and speak briefly on them before moving on to a broader analysis. Let's first talk about the portion of this bill that most directly relates to much of what I talked about up until now. The PRO Act would make a whole mess of changes to the rules which govern union elections. The first and most obviously and immediately good thing would be its implementation of an already existing NLRB concept of quick elections, which would mean that a union vote would be held less than two weeks from the filing of an election petition. And the filing of that petition is the trigger for a vote. So within two weeks of actually triggering a vote, you would get one. In addition to this, the union would be entitled to choose the physical location of the vote, as well as whether the vote will be conducted through mail-in ballots or even electronically. Even more important, Employers like Amazon would no longer be considered a party in the election process. What this would mean is that a company like Amazon could no longer force employees to attend propaganda meetings to force anti-union bullshit at them with no argument from either employees or the union itself. This would address things like Amazon convincing the post office to install a Dropbox on-site at the warehouse once the election was allowed to be conducted by mail-in ballots, which was a further method to intimidate voting workers. This one thing by itself is a clawback of the massive power imbalance I was talking about before. The next thing I want to bring up here is the joint employer issue. Now, some of you, you might remember I talked briefly about a Supreme Court case called Browning-Ferris Industries, or BFI, Versus the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. BFI versus NLRB. In that initial case, BFI used subcontractors to fill roles at BFI. The employees tried to organize and were prevented and sued. And I'm blasting through this quickly and leaving a lot out, but that's the basic of it. The NLRB decided that. BFI infringed on the rights of their workers, and BFI challenged the ruling, and it went to the Supreme Court. The court ruled in favor of the employees in this case and said that the workers were so-called jointly employed and could bargain for their rights. I went a little deeper on this case and another one back in episode 11, if you want a little bit more context. But here's the thing. When Trump stuffed a bunch of Republicans on the NLRB, they decided to review the case, and, shocking nobody, they ruled in the big corporations' favor and destroyed the entire joint employer thing along the way and hurt workers, specifically subcontractors. So, basically, the Supreme Court broadened the definition of joint employer when more than one company is controlling an employee, like with subcontractors. Then the NLRB, defying their stated purpose of protecting workers, shrunk that definition to make it basically useless. The PRO Act expands this definition once again. And this is actually a really, really important part, as more and more workers find themselves relegated to temporary or subcontracted employees, and it is an important step in helping us organize for our rights. Okay, these next two parts of the PRO Act are being a little overlooked in my opinion, but are important to talk about here. The first is that it removes the right of an employer to replace striking employees with the scabs that they hire during a strike, and it would prevent preemptive lockouts by companies. This one rule Overturns decades old precedent from the Supreme Court that allows an employer to not fire scabs it hired during a strike and therefore causes a striking employee to be jobless if they come back and find their job taken, an action that would be illegal otherwise. This can't be overlooked. Any striker should be guaranteed the same position that they held when the strike commenced regardless of if a scab was hired in the interim. As it stands, they are not guaranteed that basic right to their job, and this is something that absolutely positively needs to be addressed, and the PRO Act does just that in a brilliant fashion. Now this next one, it hits somewhat close to home. It basically says that an arbitration panel will decide on terms of an initial contract between union and employer, if those parties fail to hammer out a contract on their own in the first 120 days after union ratification. Now this hits home because another location in my company that voted to unionize has been supposedly negotiating for over four years for that first contract. At every instance, the company is stalling, stonewalling, and hiding in an attempt to starve out its own employees rather than give them a contract. This is, in fact, a very common tactic. Do everything possible to not agree to a contract and wait until support for the union wanes. Or you hire enough new employees to dilute the ranks and they decertify, which happened at a different location of my company just recently. There is no end to what these companies can and will do with the power imbalance that they hold over us. Essentially, this arbitration panel would look at the company's finances and its likely future earnings, as well as factoring in what the employees need to take care of themselves, their families, and other dependents, and then factor out a fair wage and benefit package. This initial, arbitrated contract would run for two full years and be entirely binding. The PRO Act would also give the NLRB some teeth. As it stands, they have no real way to punish bad actors. The best they can do is force a company to rehire an employee that they wrongly fired and give them back pay. This just happened with Elon Musk and Tesla, actually after Musk was found to have violated the law with his tweets and Tesla wrongly fired a unionizing worker. Granted, the teeth aren't too big and too scary, but at least there are teeth now. Okay, now we get to my three favorite portions of this bill. One, more strikes and picketing. Two, eliminating the right-to-work laws. Three, Expand the definition of employee. Currently, the NLRA only allows picketing directed at the direct employer that the union has an issue with. The PRO Act would allow secondary pickets, something which is currently illegal, and allow unions to pressure other companies to not do business with the primary employer. This is a powerful weapon in labor's arsenal that has been left to rot by current corporate written law. So, say you work for a big bakery company that makes snack cakes and stuff like that, and the bakers go on strike. Right now, it is illegal for you to pick it in front of, say, like the company that provides the flour to the bakery, or maybe the plastic for the packaging, in an attempt to stop them from doing business with the bakery. The inability to do this takes away a potent weapon from the workers, and the PRO Act fixes this. The PRO Act also explicitly, allows and supports strikes, which is pretty wild. We need more strikes and more picketing in this country. We've lost something as we've lost our ability to attack our overlords in this manner. Now, how about right to work, my friends? How about destroying right to work? Basically, right to work laws allow employees to take union benefits without paying for them. Essentially. The 27 states with right-to-work legislation legalized theft in the workplace. These so-called right-to-work laws were crafted to destroy unions by starving them of funds, and they are working. There is no more important goal that we should have as workers than to overturn or simply debase these unjust laws. All employees covered by a union contract should be required to pay dues, period end of the story, no arguments allowed. Okay, so now for what is probably the single biggest aspect of this bill, the expansion of the definition of the term employee. First, I'll lay it out in somewhat more technical terms. The National Labor Relations Act is relevant for regular employees as opposed to supervisors or supposedly independent contractors. Currently, the definition for supervisors is extremely broad. If an employer gives a regular employee the ability to do something as simple as assign work during a shift, they can be classified as a supervisor. As a quick example, fast food and retail companies have long abused this incredibly broad and loose definition of employee to skirt paying overtime to their overworked employees by giving the employee some tiny aspect of a supervisory rule, like maybe even something as small as being responsible for closing the restaurant or store and putting the employee on salary rather than hourly pay. And then they work them 70 hours a week because they won't have to pay them overtime because they are a quote-unquote supervisor. The PRO Act eliminates such shenanigans and it requires anyone who is a supervisor to perform supervisory duties for the majority of their shifts day in and day out. The other big side of this is the independent contractor situation. And by situation, I mean the massive corporate fraud and exploitation of workers. Right now, companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, really any so-called gig economy jobs, are allowed to classify its workers as independent contractors rather than employees. Now, this is wrong from the start. Of course these people are employees of these companies. Of course. There is absolutely no doubt about this. And this epidemic of misclassification extends deep into other fields that experience massive amounts of job precarity, as well as safety and health issues. Fields like construction as an example, where so many workers on job sites are classified as independent contractors to skirt the cost associated with employees, just like Uber and DoorDash do. This independent contractor nonsense is merely the company trying to get its employees to consider themselves little micro-entrepreneurs rather than employees, which is just ridiculous. Gig companies absolutely employ these folks— Their employees and should be counted and treated as such. Now, why is this classification so important? Well, by being allowed to lie and classify its workers as contractors, companies like Uber can essentially exempt themselves from providing basic rights to their employees and prevent the employees from being able to access those rights from Uber. These benefits and rights include time and a half for overtime, paid sick days, vacation, employer-provided health care, and unemployment insurance, which we really saw the downside of during this pandemic age. And lastly, and biggest for this particular episode, bargaining rights. Right now, gig workers aren't considered employees, and this makes it incredibly difficult and sometimes impossible to organize as a union and collectively bargain a fair and appropriate contract with the corporations which employ them under brutal conditions. The PRO Act would implement what is called the ABC Test to determine whether a worker or group of workers is truly an independent contractor or if they are, in fact, an employee. The ABC Test consists of three parts, parts A, B, and C if you can believe that to run those down real quick to be considered an independent contractor all 3 of these criteria must be met any work these people do must be a done without the direction and control of the employer b be performed outside of the usual course of the employer's business and c be done by someone who has their own independent business or trade doing that kind of work. This test would almost certainly include, as employees, all gig workers and many more supposedly independent contractors and allow them to access the basic workers' rights guaranteed to employees in this country and allow them to organize and collectively bargain as unions. So I think it's pretty important here, to note something else as well. When I'm saying the PRO Act makes independent contractors employees, I mean that as a class of workers, not necessarily how some of us tend to think about employees. What I mean by this is that their job description would be roughly the same as it is now. So let's take Uber as an example once again. They'd basically be run how they are now, but the employees would have access to unemployment, as an example, something which they are denied right now. And this example really strikes at the heart of why these companies fight so hard to not call their workers employees. It's because by doing that, they don't have to pay certain taxes and they can sidestep costs and push all of those costs down to the employee, oh, I'm sorry, the independent contractor, (laughs) and force them to eat those costs all while paying them relative peanuts. And it would, by conferring the status of employee to these workers rather than contractor, allow them to more easily and more substantially organize into a union and bargain for better treatment. So now that we know what the PRO Act is, and we have some understanding of what it will change and add to the labor movement in this country, what does it all mean in a broader sense. Strengthening the labor sector is a huge deal. The PRO Act doesn't do a ton to fortify existing unions, as far as I can tell, aside from negating right-to-work laws and allowing more secondary strikes and pickets, which is nothing to sneeze at as we noted earlier, but it does help clear a pathway for new unions to form and for old unions to expand. This fortification would come after eight decades of concerted and largely successful efforts to push back the widespread unionization that happened even before, but especially during the New Deal era from the 30s to the 70s. The first heavy blow to land against organized labor was in the form of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, just 12 years after the landmark Wagner Act, which established the NLRB. Taft Hartley was designed to limit union power and it achieved its goal to perfection, especially as the 70s rolled into the 80s. Taft Hartley and the weakening of organized labor led to the stagnation of wages as well as reducing the retirement potential for millions of American workers. It also contributed to the neoliberalization of American politics, economics, and culture. In 1980, When Reagan got control of the NLRB board, nearly 25% of American workers were in a union. By 1990, it was down to about 18%. Currently, it sits at about 10%. Along the way, wages have not grown. In fact, they've remained relatively flat and stagnant all along the way, and wealth inequality has skyrocketed. Unions... Raise wages. Unions provide safer work environments. And unions protect jobs and livelihoods. Unions even help bring people of various upbringings, cultures, and religions together. The benefits of a union contract span race, color, creed, sexual orientation, and gender. A higher union density would likely even close the disparities in income and wealth between whites and minorities and men and women. Richard Trumka, head of the AFL-CIO, and to be honest with everyone, not really someone who I have fond feelings for, recently spoke on this aspect of organized labor when he said this. He said, quote, the PRO Act is a civil rights act. If you have a union contract, everyone is making the same wages. There's no differential between men and women, black and white. There are protections for LGBTQ for women. The law doesn't always protect them. their contracts do. End quote." And despite Trumpka's checkered past, I largely agree with that statement. Some business types, as well as the absolute goons over at the Chamber of Commerce, are attempting to spread fear about this bill by running out the same old tired yarn. They claim that workers defending their right to collectively bargain would somehow force businesses to close. They claim that the PRO Act would, and I quote, eliminate any sense of balance. Yeah, balance in the employer-employee relationship. This was said unironically, by the way. So let me ask the audience this. What the fuck is balanced about Amazon negotiating with a single employee? Where is the balance when Amazon can literally change traffic lights outside of their facility to prevent people from talking to them? Where is the balance when Amazon drives their employees with inhumane cruelty? Where is the balance when Amazon holds captive audience meetings where nobody but Amazon is allowed to speak? Where is the power balance when Amazon spends tens of millions of dollars in propaganda and opposition research to deny its employees its right to organize? Where is it? It doesn't exist. I answered it for you. These supposed concerns are, of course, absolute nonsense and fear-mongering. The PRO Act isn't that powerful to begin with. It barely even begins to claw back the corporate-friendly wins that have accumulated over the years. All it does is give the workers who want to unionize a fair shot at doing so, or at least a more fair shot at it. It doesn't exactly introduce communism to the country or whatever Fox News is probably on about right now. The real way that we restore some semblance of balance to the power differential between employers and employees Is with more unions. It's been this way for a long time. After all, the employer always has a natural advantage over a singular employee, especially as it climbs ever closer to monopsony or monopoly level of market power or even local and regional domination. We saw it during the New Deal. We saw it after World War II. We have seen it more recently with nursing strikes and the various teacher walkouts and wildcat strikes that galvanized so many and won those teachers' raises in better working conditions, not to mention how much it improved schools for their students. We even saw the power that an organized labor sector can hold when the cabin personnel of major airlines refused to fly on jets that were receiving inadequate maintenance and repairs during the height of the COVID pandemic and lockdowns. These brave folks shut down air travel through the entire country and forced changes to be made that improved their own safety, but also the safety of anyone who needed to fly. Now just imagine what truck drivers and maybe port workers could do and demand if they worked together. There is literally no other institution in the history of this country that has ever done more to countervail the terrific, and horrible power that corporations wield over their workers and the rest of us at large than labor unions have. A recent poll done by Gallup shows that 65% of Americans approve of unions. 60% say they would like to join a union. Yet private sector unionization stands at just 6.2%, a pitiful amount. This is why the PRO Act is so important. Right now, the road to unionization is a steep, uphill battle on pitted, potholed, and crumbling roads that are barely passable. The roads remain in such poor condition because corporations have destroyed them and kept them in disrepair. The PRO Act would pave these roads and perhaps drop the incline a few degrees and allow more of these people who want to be in a union to actually be in a union. So to summarize again, the PRO Act fortifies existing unions and creates a smoother, more level path towards unionization, and it removes some of the methods, barely legal and absolutely immoral methods, I might add, that companies use to defeat unions from their arsenal. And unions, which the PRO Act would help us to organize, raise wages, improve safety, improves job security, lowers gender and racial and other wage and wealth gaps, and fosters greater work solidarity and unity across all potential dividing lines. And they do all of that, even for workers who are not in a union. One talking point that Amazon used in their anti-union propaganda was that they already pay just slightly over the proposed $15 minimum wage. They used this as some sort of reason to not collectively bargain. But what this talking point left out was that unionized warehouses in the same region as the Bessemer plant, they all make more money and have better benefits than Amazon has. Oh, and here's another factoid about minimum wage. Denmark pays their McDonald's employees $20 per hour. And Denmark has no minimum wage law. And before everyone starts arguing their nonsense about costs, a Big Mac costs just 80 cents more than it does here in the States. How does it do this with no minimum wage law? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because they have massive union density. That's how. When union workers win a contract, it incentivizes other workers to organize, and it also prompts other non-union companies to up their pay, benefit, And safety packages to keep up and stave off a potential union drive. But unions do something else as well. And this last aspect is where I will spend a little time as I wrap this whole thing up because I think that it is incredibly important to think about. Unions bring workers together and introduce a bit of democracy to the workplace. Think about it what is a union drive? It's a political act. This is why the union effort at my work failed. Nobody treated it for what it was, including the union itself. Including myself, actually. How are unions created in a workplace? It's with a vote. It takes time, effort, and diligence to win an election. Unionizing is absolutely a political act. Being in a union is political. It's solidarity in voting for class interest. Unions are left politics writ small or writ large, maybe, maybe writ medium. I don't know. Depends how I think about it, I guess, but it does all of that I was just talking about. I'm pretty sure of that. The United States has lost something over the years that other countries simply have not the protest and strike. We've forgotten about direct action in this country, just as we've forgotten about organizing labor. In a previous episode, I talked about what politics is and is not. A bunch of dorks on the floor of the Senate bending to arcane rules in mock formality? That's not politics. Airline flight attendants refusing to fly on potentially compromised airplanes? That is politics. Putting on a performance on an election season debate stage on ABC? Not politics. Throwing ball bearings into million-dollar machines because your health insurance got cut? yep, politics. Voting? Not politics. Picket lines? Politics. Politics is direct action. Union members are more likely to be politically engaged, more likely to vote, more likely to volunteer in their community, more likely to engage in protests and honor strike lines, and are more politically informed than unorganized workers. They also tend to be more in favor of communal solutions rather than the individualistic bullshit that is tearing this country apart at the seams. The presence of unions and good labor law creates the necessary solidarity and even more importantly, the confidence that as an employee, a person can openly talk about these things with their co-workers. These good labor laws create a foundational level of how well workers should be treated within companies and within the broader economic system. Once this is established, more people will see the gains in security that unionized workers have and feel more free to pursue their own organizing efforts. I've heard people talk about how we need to change the political leadership landscape to get a labor movement started, and I've heard a lot of people say the opposite, that we need to unionize before we can do anything politically. I kind of believe that these are both half-truths, and that the reality is that these two movements the broader electoral and political movements and, and the on-the-ground labor organizing feed each other and off of each other's energy. A little political organizational ecosystem, I guess. Some self-sufficient, self-fulfilling feedback loop. What we are really talking about at the core here is democracy. Democracy in the country, sure, but really democracy at our places of employment. And if you think that a national government is a top-down tyranny upon your life, wait until you turn that gaze upon wherever it is that you work, or on yourself if you're a CEO or owner. We reside at a point right now where the working class can either start punching and climbing up, or we can slide further down into the sub-basement. Do we want to fade away, or do we want to fight back and demand at the very least the conditions that helped lead to the middle-class boom from the 40s to the early 80s. Do we want to fight for even more? For even better circumstances, better outcomes, and more equity? Or do we want more of the same conditions that have left two entire generations worse off than their parents? And this is in a country where no generation has ever failed to, on average, be better off than their parents. Now we have two generations Who are on that terrible track to be less well off? Unions are good for democracy at all levels, from work right on up to the federal government. But democracy at work, democracy where we spend at least half of our waking lives, it also secures for us a better life both inside and outside of work. It does it inside of work with better safety, a better environment, more employee engagement and security of our jobs. It does it outside of work with better pay, better benefits, and more time to spend where it really matters, at home, with our friends, and most importantly, our families. But this level of democracy, this unionization, this, this what, this, the solidarity It also helps hold up such fundamental issues like free speech and our ability to associate with whoever we want. Imagine the sorts of people who want to remove democracy from your workplace. Imagine the types of people who are trying to convince us to not join together, to not stand in solidarity, and to kowtow to the bosses. They're the same people pushing toxic positivity, self-help, neo-spirituality bullshit and selfish individualistic action as an alternative. A group of actions which will never, ever lead to change. To make real change, we need to talk to each other. We need to engage with each other. We need to hold each other up. We need to become an actual working class that exists outside of headings on economic charts. There is no real working class without solidarity. And unions are solidarity. And that's the episode, guys. Thank you once again for listening. I always appreciate it. And again, I apologize for the wait. But we're back. And we're going to be going on, uh, we're going to be moving forward, putting episodes out. And if you enjoy the podcast, the single best thing that you can do to help me out is to click the little iTunes link below and leave a rating or a review. It's the most powerful way to help a podcast grow. And hey, if you like any of these episodes, please don't hesitate to share them. Share them wherever you want. Help bring in new listeners. All right, guys, that's it. Thank you. Love you all.